Well, good morning. We want to continue our discussion that we began last week on the uh, nuances of love. The, the question that we're trying to take very serious and delve into the scriptures and understand is simply this. How important is love to Christianity? How important is love to our Christian faith? Now, I have been called tectarded, and I embrace that. But even I know how to Google a smartphone. And so as I have uh, Googled my smartphone on just a very simple question, and the question is this, why are Christians so, and what I expect would be, why are Christians so loving, kind, tender? Over the last six months, this is what I found Googled. Why are Christians so arrogant, angry, awesome, boring, blind, bigoted, crazy, closed-minded, cheesy, condescending, depressed, defensive, easily offended, evil, extreme, against evolution, fake, fat, full of hate, fearful, gullible, greedy, anti-gay, against gays, happy, oh, we're happy, homophobics, ignorant, ignorant, yahoo, judgmental, judgmental, yahoo, so kind. Well, there, there's a good oh, love. There's loving, lame, lonely, mean, mean, atheist, miserable, narrow-minded, naive, negative, pushy, poor, pro-Israel, persecuted, rude, retarded, racist, self-righteous, and stubborn, stuck-up, selfish, unlike their Christ, uptight, unhappy, unlike their Christ. Whoa, we've got a problem, Houston. 15 to 1, negative. That's how we're perceived. And yet, I don't think that's quite what Jesus had in mind when he said, now this command I give unto you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you. Love one another, so that the whole world will know you are my disciples. Love. From where does it come? Seriously. The existence of love. From where does it come? Did it exist before mankind? Does love actually find its origin in the very heart of the maker? John writes in 1 John 4, 7, Now, beloved, let us love one another, for love is, here it is, from God, originates from the maker. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Now, the one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Now, I know most of us slept through ninth grade English. But many times people will say that, well, love is always a verb. God so loved the world. And sometimes love is a verb. But when it says here, God is love, the verb is that verb to be, is. God is. That's the verb. Well, then if is is the verb, what's the love? God is love. Write this one down. It's a predicate nominative. Now, that will make you some money on trivia. Now, what in us? What is predicate nominative? It restates the nature of the subject. So, love is just not something God does. Love is something God is. God values what He makes because He recognizes the worth of anything He creates, anything He makes, and He's moved to care about the well being. It's His nature. So it's from the very heart of God that love issues. How is that possible? 
Love is relational. You gotta have an I and a you for there to be the existence of love. You know, we've been really puzzled by this Trinity thing. That God is God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. God is a triunity. He's three persons, one God. Oh, you mean a three-headed God? No. One God. Oh, you mean three different gods? No. Three persons who make up the Godhead make up God. Well, that sounds so absurd. And we get really, really confused about it. And quite frankly, we Christians are embarrassed because we can't explain it. And, and, and we don't really fully understand it. We come up with things, well, God is an egg. And with an egg, you have a shell and a yolk and a white. See, God's like an egg. Go, what? No, 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 no. God's like water. Water can be solid. It can be uh, uh, mist. It can be liquid. God's like water. And we go, what, what are we doing here? It was Sigmund Freud who said the reality is that mankind, we, we basically make up our gods that we worship and they come out of our imagination. And I think for the most part he's correct. Most people basically supersize, much like McDonald's, somebody or something they really like and they deified, it becomes the god of their worship. But the Trinity, here's my question. Since we are a bit ashamed that we don't understand it and a bit embarrassed because we can't explain it, but you do understand that's the very evidence that this is what God revealed about himself because why would we ever make up a God we cannot understand and we cannot explain? It cannot come out of our imagination because we never would have come up with that one. But it really now makes sense to me because if God is the author of life and the essence of life is more than just eating, breathing, sleeping, but the essence of life is relationship. The opposite of life is death. The word is thanatos. It means isolation, separation. When you're isolated, separated from relationships, that's death. Life is basically relational. That's what Jesus said in John 17. Lord, I came to give them eternal life. And this is eternal life, a relationship with you and the one whom you, you sent. If God is the author of life, and life, the essence of life, is relationship then there's got to be a relationship within the maker. There's got to be an I and a you. And not only is that so he can issue life, but he also issues love. Because love has to be in a relationship. And Jesus said the Father loves the Son, the Son loves the Father, the Holy Spirit loves the Father and the Son. There is a community of love within the Godhead. Therefore, God can have the capacity to create life, which is relational, relational, and he is the author, the origin of love, love itself. See, see, we have this existence of something that doesn't make a lot of sense. There is something in, in people, believers and unbelievers, those created in the image of God, everyone that moves them to be concerned about the well-being of people in crisis. Whether that be tsunamis in Japan or earthquakes in Mexico or, or tornadoes there in the Midwest, people, believers and unbelievers, are moved to care. Now what is it in human beings that move them to care with unselfish desire, even sacrifice for the well-being of others? This contradicts evolution. This is not the Darwinian survival of the fittest. Basically the only trinity you care about is me, myself, and I, and my survival and better than, and yet we see, 
we see with crisis, human beings are moved. Something moves them to actually care for the worth and the well-being of others. You see, this comes from the maker himself. And every human being has the residue of being created in God's image. So God, the triunity, the community of love within the Godhead, he authors life and he authors love. And there's something about God that not only does he author life and love, he values, he values within the Trinity and he values the Trinity, values whatever they create, whatever he creates. I mean, the proof of that is John 3, 16. For God so loved the world. <laughs> Excuse me, the world didn't turn out very well. But the fact is, the one who authors love, he puts value and worth on anything he makes, no matter how it turns out, and that's where we find human dignity. That's where we find worth. You take God out of the formula, it's pure performance, and you better be good enough. Because you'll have no worth, no dignity. But you see, God is the author of life, He's the author of love because he values what he creates. He creates and he recognizes the worth of what he creates. And he's moved and he cares about the well-being. And he just desires for his creation to do the same. That's why in Genesis 1.27, we're said that human beings, we are created in the image of God. Now it's interesting. Uh, it doesn't say angels are created in the image of God doesn't say animals are created in the, animal, in the image of God. But human beings uniquely were created in the image of God. What does that mean? Some say, well, that's our position of ruling over the creation. But most will say, no, that has more to do with our person. We have a capacity. Unlike animals, apparently even unlike angels, we have a capacity to manifest our maker. To manifest, to make known what our maker is like. Now, we do not have a capacity to manifest as deity. I'm not very good with the omnis, omnipresent, omniscience, uh, 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 omnipotent. In other words, if you want to be a god, you've got to participate in the creation of the heavens and the earth. So if you actually participated in the creation of the heavens and the earth and the universe, then you're part, you're deity, you're divine. No, no, we, we, we cannot manifest the deity of our maker but made in his image, we can manifest his glory. As a matter of fact, we're actually commanded to do so. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19-20, Paul says, You're not your own. You do know you've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God with your body, your spirit, which belong to him. The word glorify is the word doxadzo. It means to basically manifest, make visible doxa. Doxa is the word glory. Well, if I'm creating the image of God and I have this capacity to, to manifest the glory of God, then I would kind of like to know what that is I'm supposed to be manifesting and how do I do that thing? Well, remember old Moses asked the question. Remember Moses, he's out with the children of Israel. He's up receiving the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. Remember he comes down with the two tablets and they're having a party with a little golden idol and they're really blowing it big time. And talk about breaking the Ten Commandments. Moses busted all ten at one time, right? Well, he goes back up to Mount Sinai and he knows that God's going to make them a scab in the desert. He's going to come down hard. And he wants to know how hard. So that's when in Exodus 33, Moses asked God the question, God, show me your glory. Show me your glory. Now what is Moses asking God? The glory is synonymous to your name. God, what is it that you're going to do? 
God, what is it about you you want us to know? What do you want human beings to know about their maker? And God answers this question. In Exodus 34, God says, I will declare my name. I will declare my glory. Here's what I've created you with the capacity to manifest. Not my deity, so you're running around like little gods, but my glory. And he says, my glory is that you shall see my graciousness, my compassion, slow to get angry, forgiveness, truth, and most important, my loving kindness. In other words, he says, I want them to know that love issues from the heart of the maker, and I want it known through those I've created in his own image. You were designed to do so, and I made it possible for you to do so. See, as creatures, we're, we're more than just creatures. I mean, God's got all kinds of creatures. He's got dogs. He's got cats. He's got mules. He's got bugs and mosquitoes and us. But because we're created in the image of God, God has destined us to be a unique creation, unlike creatures. And creatures, if they have consciousness, the best they can do is appease a creator. Let's have a thousand religions and come up with a hundred different ways to keep the creator from killing us. And most creatures don't even have consciousness, so there's a total indifference to their maker. But God has designed us, created in his image, to not just remain creature to a creator, creator to a creature, and that's all the relationship will be. We're not going to remain there. Has it ever bothered you? Or have you ever wondered, why does the first person of the Trinity refer to the second person of the Trinity as son? Why does the second person of the Trinity refer to the first person of the Trinity, father? Well, that must show you that the second person of the Trinity is not as divine as the first person of the Trinity because he's only the Son. Hmm. As you know, I have two sons. John's 41, New Testament professor. Kent's, he's going to be 39 in a couple weeks, and he's the senior pastor of Bethany Bible Church, the mother church of Scottsdale Bible Church, by the way. Isn't that ironic? They're both my sons. I'm the father. They're the sons. They're the sons. I'm the father. So clearly, they are less human than I am. <laughs> A little less human than I am. No. See how ludicrous the thought is. God the father, God the son. He's talking about their relationship. The father relates to the son. The son relates to the Father. In Psalm chapter 2, verse 7, God says to the Son, Thou art my Son. Now, some will say, Well, he's talking about David. There he's talking about David. Well, if he's talking about David in Psalm 2, he wasn't talking about David in Hebrews 1 when he says the same thing. Look at chapter 1. Listen to verse 5. To which of the angels did God ever say, Thou art my Son? Today I have begotten thee. And again, I'll be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. This is the relationship. How do you know he's not saying, well, he's less than divine? In Bible study, when in doubt, here's a little help. Read the next verse. <laughs> and when he again brings the firstborn, firstborn into the world, he says, and let all the angels of God worship him. And in the Father, verse 8, but the Son, the Father says to the Son, thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. 
And so within the Godhead, the Father has a relationship with the second person of the Trinity as Son, and the Son to the Father. Why do they choose that relationship? Why those words? I mean, it could have been Ben and Jerry, uh, uh, Batman and Robin. I mean, it could have talked about all, any kind of relationship. But it's a relationship between a father and a son, a son and a father. And why would, when the second person of the Trinity incarnates comes to this earth, Jesus Christ, why does he begin every one of his prayers with Father? Even when the boys in Matthew 7, Matthew 6 showed up and said, Jesus, teach us how to pray. Jesus said, well, pray like this. And if you're Lutheran, pray this. But either way, he says, pray like this. Our Father who art in heaven. He says, when you address your maker, address him as your Father. So then we have John 1.12 that says, But as many as received to Jesus Christ, to him God gave them the authority to become what? Sons of God. Children of God. In Romans chapter 8 verse 14, he says, God did not give us the spirit of slavery, but the spirit of adoption, so that we can cry out, Abba, of a father. He says in Romans 8, 16, for it's the spirit of God in us that bears witness with our spirit. We are children of God. Now I know you ladies are kind of going, you know, I get so sick and tired about sons and sons and sonship. No, 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 no. I got a verse for you. And if I didn't have a verse for you, I'd have to have worn a football helmet today. No, he says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18. And I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Sonship includes sons and daughters, children of the Heavenly Father. You know the last book of the Bible, the, the, the second to the last chapter, Revelation 21, God says something fascinating. He says, to those who overcome, I will be their God and he shall be my son. Do you understand that we're never going to be little gods? We're never going to be part of the Trinity unless you participated in the creation of the heavens and the earth and the universe. But we have the exact same relationship with the Father that the Son has. What happened to us when we came to Christ? When we humbled ourselves and said, you know, God, I, I acknowledge I'm a sinner. My life is indifferent to you, and I pretty well just worship myself and live my life without you. And God, I have betrayed my creation. God, I'm a sinner. And I can't believe the scandal of grace that you would send your own son. You would bring punishment, judgment for my sin, and you'd pour it on yourself. I poured it on your own son so that my sin's been judged 2,000 years ago. And then, God, you would, as a gift of grace and mercy, be willing to give it to me as a gift if I just humble myself and say, God, please forgive me. How can you receive a gift unless you've asked for it? How can you be forgiven unless you've asked for it? But those of us who have asked for God's forgiveness because of what Jesus did on that cross, what happened? Well, our sins have been forgiven. But what happened? You know, it's Ezekiel 36. When he says in verse 26, 27, he says, not only will I forgive your sins, but I'm going to take that old heart, that heart of stone within you, and I'm going to pull it right out of you. 
and I'm going to place my spirit within you and give you a new heart. And this new heart, the spirit will cause you to keep my statutes, a desire to honor God as your father. You see, to the heart to the Jews, it's different than the heart in our culture. The heart in our culture is basically, you know, emotional, romantic, not to the Jews. They don't really even have a word for mind. They use the word heart. Because in the Hebrew thought, the heart was the deepest, deepest thoughts and desires you ever have. And you take your deep thoughts and your deep desires, put them together, that's your attitude towards life. That's what moves you to treat people the way you do. To live the life the way you live it is your deepest desires, your deepest thoughts put together. That's your attitude. What happened to us is we got a new heart. Say, how do I know I got a new heart? Jeremiah 31, 33, God says, I'll take my law, all that I desire for you, and I will write it on your heart. How do I know? Because when you came to Christ, you now have deep desires and thoughts you never had before. Like what? Instead of appeasing, appeasing God like a creature appeases a creator, you have a deep desire to honor God, your maker, as your father. As your heavenly father. And so the change has been made in us. See, how come I sometimes don't always feel that? You got to let the spirit of God awaken the new heart. How? What was the command of Christ? This I command you. Love one another as I have loved you. Remember the love in the, in the Greek. He's not talking about the love we've come up with, eros, a lot of passion, phileo, friendship, storge, kind of the family deal. But it's agape. And remember, agape is a choice because Jesus commands it. You can't command emotion, not initially. A command is that you make the choice with a will to choose to obey, a command. And remember, Jesus said, this command I give unto you to agape. Remember, that's the big WW. First W. Recognize the worth of others created in the image of God. Second W, and then permit yourself to be concerned for their well-being. But here's what happens. When I choose to follow my deep, deep desires, my deep heart desires and thoughts, when I choose to obey the command of Christ and just recognize the worth of others created in the image of God, the Holy Spirit awakens my heart and all of a sudden, I have this desire to be concerned and care about their well-being as well. And that's when you know there's been a change. That's when you know that you've got a heart that has been changed. Well, what does any of this have to do with Jesus? I mean, why, why are we called followers of Jesus? Why are we called Christian, Christianus, Christ followers, Christ worshipers? Why, why is Jesus such a big deal? We're supposed to be disciples of Jesus. Matthew 10 says, we'll become like our master, uh, Matthew 28, Jesus says, go make disciples. We're all supposed to be becoming more and more like Jesus. Why? You know, the word predestination freaks a lot of people out. Are you predestined? Well, relax. It's used at least twice in the scripture. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4 says, Before the foundation of the world, God chose those who would be in Christ and predestined them to be conformed to Christ, the image of Christ. Oh, God chose who's going to be predetermined to be like Christ. Yeah, but then Romans 8.29 says, All whom he has foreknown, prognosco, like prognosis at the doctor, all those he knew before, he's predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. 
Oh, now we got something to fight about. Let's find our playground right between the ears of God and say, okay, God first chose, and then he knew, then he predestined. No, 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 no. God knew, and then he chose, then he predestined. Calvinism, Arminianism, let's fight. You know, I don't know about you. I don't want to play on the playground between God's ears and try to explain how God thinks. And he thinks this first, and he thought that. No, no, he forgot this. He went back and thought this. He's not very good at algebra. You sure you want to play in that playground and be so dogmatic about it? Because the point of both verses is we're predetermined to become like Jesus Christ. I want to know why. Tell you why. Romans 8, 29. He says, because Jesus is the firstborn among the many brethren. So we saw in Hebrews 1. I sent in the firstborn. Like I said, unless you participated in the creation of the universe, we're never going to become little gods. But we have a relationship with Jesus Christ as Savior, as Lord, and catch it, he's firstborn among many brethren. He is our older brother in relationship to God the Father. Now, he's that older brother that, that usually is like, you know, my parents always liked the older brother. He got straight A's, you know, got scholarship, varsity, four years, you know, went to Stanford. We hate our older brothers because they're always so perfect. Well, this older brother is perfect, but we don't hate him because the firstborn, our older brother, shows us how to fulfill this deep heart desire, which is to honor God as our father. And we don't have a clue how to do it. So we come up with liturgy and rituals and religion and I go to church and I do this and we come up with all kinds of ways we think is honoring God. <laughs> but only one person heard from heaven at his baptism. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. He heard it a second time from heaven. Matthew 17 at his transfiguration. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Then he says, listen to him. I got that. Listen to him. Because there is somebody who has a clue who knows exactly how to honor God as father. And it's his son. It's his firstborn. And that's why we are all being conformed to the image of Christ, following Christ, becoming and pursuing more Christ-like because that's going to be the fulfillment of this deepest desire to honor God as our Father. Well, then how do you live out the habits of Christ-likeness? The answer is agape. Agape. Let me, let me show you. You know, for 25 years when I was pastor here, I, I ended every service with what? Walk worthy. I did it enough that we got a bookstore named after it. Walk worthy. But you know, those 25 years, I never had anyone ever come up to me and say, what do you mean by that? What do you mean walk worthy? Well, I got it right out of Ephesians 4, verse 1. I therefore, Paul says, the prisoner of the Lord, I'm begging you, entreating you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. All right, I, I want to walk worthy of the calling, what I've, what, what I've been called to do. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing forbearance. Well, humility, 
Paul tells us in Philippians 2, 3, and 4, the essence of humility is to think about the interests of others more than my own. Gentleness, that's when I realize anything I have, intelligence, opportunity, influence, it's all been given to me to serve others for their well-being. Now listen to what he says. Walk worthy of the high calling in which you've been called with all humility and gentleness, patience, showing forbearance to one another in love. Agape. But there's another verse. Being diligent. Remember, the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. Being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Why, why is that such a big deal, this unity stuff? The reason is because I don't understand why. If I was God, I would have done it really differently. Good thing for you, I'm not. God actually gave the world the right to judge us. God gave the world to judge the world the right to judge whether or not we're hypocrites. And not only that, God gave the world the right to judge whether or not his son, Jesus, was a phony. In John 13, again, verse 34 and 35, Jesus said, This command I give unto you, that you love one another. If you love one another as I have loved you, all men will know you are my disciples and you are not a hypocrite. So he gives the world the right to judge us based on the way we love, the way we treat each other. Say, what about Jesus being a phony? Well, that's John 17. When Jesus prays in that great priestly prayer, and he says, now Lord, I now pray not just for these here apostles, but those who will believe because of their testimony. Now, who is he praying for? Us. All of us who believe because of the testimony of the apostles. And what is he praying for us? This is when he prays, Lord, I pray that they would be one as you and I are one so that the world will know that I came from the Father. The way we love and treat each other, the world has the right to judge whether or not Jesus is a phony or can he really change hearts? Because if he can really change hearts, then he came from the Father. And there's something supernatural about this Jesus of Nazareth. So, if this is basically all about, I want to live my life so that I honor the Father, and the more I'm like Christ, and Christ-likeness is this loving thing. I, I read in Colossians 2.6, as you receive Christ, walk in him. You know, I, I've been a pastor for 45 years. And I have to admit, I um, think I'm going to get dangerous when I get in my 80s. Because I'm getting really tired of Jesus' talk. And Christians talking about stuff, they don't have a clue what they're talking about. Like, are you walking with Christ? Oh, yeah, I'm walking in Christ. I'm so glad you're walking in Christ. What in the world are you talking about? You're walking in Christ. Well, we may not have a clue, but the Apostle Paul explained it in Ephesians 5. He says in verse 1, Therefore, be imitators of God. The word is mimitates, mimics. Therefore, be mimics of God as beloved children. 
The Father wants you as his children to make the world known his heart, his love. And walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us as an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. That's why John says, 1 John 2, verse 3, By this we know we've come to know Christ. We keep his commandment. What commandment? Remember when the lawyer in Matthew 22 comes to Jesus to test him? The lawyer says, all right, what's the most important thing God ever said? Now, the word he used was, what's, what's the greatest of all the commandments? But well, that's what he's asking. And I would be interested in the answer to that one. What's the most important thing the Creator has ever said? And who's the good person to answer that? How about the Creator himself? And Jesus' answer says, the greatest is you shall love the Lord thy God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. And the lawyer goes, okay. Starts walking off. Jesus says, get back here. I'm not done. He says, the second is as the first. And upon these two commands, the whole law rests. And he says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. You know, I didn't really understand that. Especially when later on, Paul in Galatians 5.14 says, you want to keep the whole law of God? Yeah. Then love your neighbor as yourself. Paul, you forgot the first part, loving God. Well, Paul forgot the first part. James did too. James chapter 2, verse 8 says, you want to keep the royal law of God? Love your neighbor as yourself. It wasn't until I had grown sons that it all made sense to me. I feel most loved when people love my kids. You care about my kids, I feel cared for. You honor my kids, I have been honored. So does with the Heavenly Father. It's like God was not going to trust us to come up with how we're going to love God with all our heart and all our soul and all our mind. Because he knows we're going to come up with all kinds of weird religions, strange liturgies, and funny looking rituals. Rather, God says, I'm going to tell you how you're going to love me with all your heart and your soul and your mind. You're going to love me by loving your neighbor as myself. So the world will know you're not a hypocrite and they'll know that my son's not a phony. That's how the father's honored. And every time I choose to obey the command of Christ to love, the big WW, recognize the worth of others created in the image of God and let my heart be awakened by the spirit so that I then care for their well-being, he says that's when the father feels loved and that's when the Father will indeed be honored. Just like his son, Jesus Christ, does. Who's bringing many into the family of God. Sons and daughters. Loving their creator as a child loves their heavenly father. With a deep heart desire to honor God. To honor him. Well, how do you do this thing? There, there's a chapter in the Bible called the love chapter. 1 Corinthians 13. The chapter ends with, uh, there's three things that remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest is love. In that chapter, Paul gives us actually a description of what love, making the choice to obey the command of Christ to love, and recognizing the worth, and caring about the well-being of others, 
what it looks like. I want you to take out your outline. Since most of you were taking notes, because this was very important, those who were not, take out your outline from your bulletin. I will not judge you. There will be a future day for that. No, no, I won't judge you. I want you to flip it over. On the back, I got you your homework. You don't have to turn it in, but I do want you to do your homework. Because what you have right here is a list of what love looks like as it is expressed. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy or boast. Love is not arrogant or proud. Love is not rude. Love does not insist on his or her own way. Love keeps no records of wrongs, is not irritable or resentful, does not delight in evil, and, and rejoices with truth. What I want you to do is I want you to just pick one, just one, and I want you to put your name in there. I did a dumb thing last night. I thought, well, I'll start with the first one. Daryl is patient. Last night, all this morning, not only just have I hit every red light, <laughs> but last night, Holly and Dr. Shadwick uh, were together at service, and, and we're going to meet at Ajo Owls for dinner. Uh, well, I'm talking to some people, and there was an accident out here, so I was praying with those dear folks on both sides, because the police were there, and I wanted the Christians to make sure they're acting Christian, even though they ruin each other's cars. <laughs> but then finally, I jump in a car, and I run over to Ajo Owls. I run in there, there's no Holly, no Jackie. I walk around twice, where are they? I went, oh no, they're probably at the other Ajo Owls over there on the ranch. I jump in my car, I drive over there hitting every red light. <laughs> I run into the restaurant, no Holly, no Jackie. Where are they? Jump back in my car. Go back to this all-house, hitting every red light. I go in there, and there they are, enjoying their quesadilla. <laughs> they weren't there. Holly apparently was in the restroom, and Jackie had a good time watching me run around. <laughs> I think I'm going to change patience to kind. That's easier, easier, however you do it. I want you to pick one of these. Why just one? Because if you focus on one, it's the same Spirit of God that produces all of them. And if we can just get you focused on one, the other will follow. I want you to put your name in one of these. And then I want you to put this next to your bed or stick it up on the mirror. And this week, I just want you to focus on the one. And watch how God, the Spirit of God in you, will awaken your heart. And not only will you see the supernatural change in your own life become real to you, but you're going to make known that Jesus isn't a phony. And you're a hypocrite. Is it really possible that this all comes down to love? The big WW? Recognizing the worth of others and then being concerned for their well-being and doing something about it? Does God expect all of his children to be able to honor him? Children? People of tribes? Other languages? Well, then how complicated do you think God would make it for all of his children? From the very intelligent 
to the non-intelligent, the very civilized to the non-civilized. Could it be that when everything's said and done, the main thing is to keep the main thing, the main thing, and the main thing is love? Now, last week, put in your bulletin, Love Conspiracy, just a Bible companion to help you keep this on the radar. We found a lot of these on the floor last Sunday. <laughs> Heavenly Father, forgive my people for their sins. We will take these with us. If you already have yours, then give it to somebody this week. Heavenly Father, I would pray that we would be a people that would be a people of your heart. That people would see we are honest, authentic believers. And maybe one day we would Google the smartphone and it would say again and again and again, why are Christians so loving? That, Father, they might see us and say, oh, how they love and made Jesus Christ known. Father, answer this prayer. For I know it's a desire of your son, Jesus Christ. It's our heart desire to honor you. God's people said, amen. Walk worthy, now you know what it means. God bless you.